Everybody up. I'm only going to say this once. Somebody copped a bottle of stimulants from the medical station. I'm going to get it back if I have to wring out every one of you like a dishrag. All rec periods are canceled till the turn's up. Okay, everybody, hands out front. That's uh, Mom Smackley, Mag. Better watch out for her. She gets uh, funny ideas, especially about the new girls. Shove it. Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show, a podcast about the movies people love watching from Letterbox, the social network for people who love watching movies. Each episode, your hosts Slim and Gemma, that's me, are joined by a Letterboxd friend for a chat about their four favourite films according to their Letterbox profile. As you listen along, we have links in the episode notes so there is no excuse not to add these films to your watch lists and you are going to want to add today's films because today our guest is exploitation expert, the one and only Lars Nilsson of Austin, Texas. Currently, Lars is the lead programmer for the very storied Austin Film Society. But before that, he programmed for the Alamo Drafthouse way back before it was the mega fancy chain of theaters it is today. From 2001 to 2013, Lars programmed the late night weird Wednesday series of film oddities, and he just released a book all about it. Warped and Faded Weird Wednesday and the Birth of the American Genre Film Archive is currently on sale for Mondo. Lars is naturally a Letterboxd member. And he's here to talk about his book and his four favorites, Touch of Evil, The Switchblade Sisters, Buster Keaton's The General, and Phantom of the Paradise. How does it feel, Lars, to maybe be the only person with both the Switchblade Sisters and the General in their letterboxed faves? What's that feeling like? It it feels slightly warm and damp. (laughs) But it's, it's exciting to be here. Thank you guys for welcoming me. Uh, um, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And I just want to drop this in. I don't know when I'll ever have a chance to talk to the Uh-oh. Letterbox people again. <laughs> I was an early adopter of Letterbox. I've been logging movies on Letterbox since 2014. I was using it in 2013. So I've, I go way back with Letterbox. And I, I look out there now and all the hip kids in Austin, and this is true. This is not just me saying this. But all the hip kids in Austin are on Letterbox, which I love as a film programmer because I can go back you know, we'll screen a film and then I just like look on recent reviews and chances are we're the only people that has have shown that film anytime recently. <laughs> and I just go through it and it's like Austin, 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 Austin. And I'm adding all these people uh, because I want to read feedback of our audience and I'm able to get all of that. So um, and then all the kids downstairs who work at the bar, you know, they're film students, filmmakers mm. and all of that. Um, they're all on Letterboxd and they're continually like they'll come into work and they'll say, wow, you gave that three and a half stars, huh? What did you think? <laughs> you know, I saw, the, I saw you logged that on Letterboxd. Like it really is such a part of the fabric of movie going now, I think, for this particular sort of generation of, of um, film enthusiasts, people who are just way over the top film enthusiasts. Yeah. Um, and then we had Sean Baker was here. The filmmaker Sean Baker was here on Tuesday night. And then what do I immediately talk to him about? Do I talk to him about his wonderful scope frame that he uses in Red Rocket? Do I talk about any of that? No, we start talking about Letterboxd immediately. <laughs> so it's so cool. And I know he's going to be a guest on your show. So Letterboxd is a force. And I uh, and I, I really just, I would not, believe me, I, I go on these other podcasts. I'm not like 
pulling their chain like this. Like, I'm really excited to be on the Letterboxd podcast. Wow. And um, that was the show, ladies and gentlemen. We'll leave it right Thanks there. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. It's, it's funny. You, you mentioned using Letterboxd, and I'm the same way with my friends. We always bust each other's chops about ratings we give movies. And in reading the book uh, this week, Warped and Faded, it was so fun to go back and hear from collectors of film prints, tracking down prints that maybe people didn't even know existed, and then screening them for people that maybe never even heard of the movie. How has that changed for you since the early 2000s? You know, when, we, when I started as a film programmer in 2001, we did have the internet. Um, when I have always marveled at is imagining what it was like before the internet at all to be a film programmer because my work as a film programmer is like, you know, I email the studio or email a distributor and say, do you have this? Uh, and then I'll go through and I'll say, oh, I got to find some photos that we can use for our calendar. Um, and then maybe I want to find some poll quotes. Um, and so I go and I go Rotten Tomatoes, see like, what did Manola Dargis say about it, et cetera. Um, and all of those things I'm able to pull together from the internet and imagine what it was like to try to run a repertory theater, which many people did you know, before the internet and having to get on the phone, line up your prints, do track your prints using the telephone, later on using fax machine, maybe sending, sending materials by, by mail, you know, sending yeah. ad mats by mail, uh, lining up newspaper ads every week, like just the amazing amount of work that um, you would have to do that we can now do so easily that we just take for granted. So, um, but even then, even between 2001 and now, things have changed a whole lot. It's gotten, it really has gotten a lot easier to the point where, you know, we show a lot of 35 millimeters films here mm -hmm. at Austin Film Society. But if we're showing something that's digital, there's a service called Eclair that our projectionists can just go on and just download a DCP in the highest possible screenable resolution, mm. a 4K DCP, you know, and download wow. that in a couple of hours, and then we're showing it the next day. So it really is such an enormously different world. And come a really long way uh, since, as written in the introduction of Warped and Faded, Tim and Carrie League overfilled a, a truck that could take something like 11,000 tons, and, and he weighed it, and it was like 20,000 tons full of film reels that he had to drive at 30 miles per hour for for, th for 11 hours back to Austin. That was repeated so many times. Um, Tim did that first big batch, but then after that, uh, my colleague Zach Carlson and I and Daniel Osborne and others, um, uh, although I hope I hope I didn't just like, uh, I hope we don't have to go to jail, uh, <laughs> uh, statute of limitations on this, but we overloaded so many trucks. We warped you talked about warped and faded. We warped so many axles of rented trucks over the years because the weight was not even a consideration. We didn't even think about it. We just thought, how many prints can we fit in here? And prints are enormously heavy and dense. So, you know, we would fill up. The, like the only consideration was mass and space. Like it was not we were not considering weight at all. And I, I found myself on the grapevine one time um, in California driving up the grapevine, which is an enormously steep grade, uh, and realizing that, like, I was going backwards because oh, <laughs> I had overloaded the truck <laughs> so much. And uh, it was, it was uh, yeah, many times we found ourselves driving really slowly, ruining um, really valuable vehicles. But that's well, why you always buy the insurance. Speaking of ruining really valuable vehicles, when a car bomb explodes on the American side of the US-Mexico border, 
in Orson right. Welles' 1958 film, Touch of Evil. I mean, can we just have a moment for that segue? Segway of the year. Gemma does it again. Yeah, yes. She never misses with these segues. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Mexican drug enforcement agent Miguel Vargas uh, played in, in some sort of uh, historically uh, retroactive Latin blackface by Charlton Heston, uh, begins his investigation along with American police captain Hank... Quinlan, when Vargas begins to suspect that Quinlan and his shady partner Menzies are planting evidence to frame an innocent man, his investigations into their possible corruption quickly put himself and his new bride Susie, the brilliant Janet Lee, once again staying in an out-of-the-way motel, in jeopardy. There's the synopsis of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. This is the first of your four favourites. So tell us why. Why is it in there? Um, well, it's a remarkable film. I'm sure you guys have seen it. it it's, a, it's, it's Orson Welles' really unique vision uh, brought to bear on what was really meant to be a tawdry piece of exploitation film. Um, even though it's a studio title, it was Universal International, uh, which was barely a studio at the time. They were really making movies that were um, medium budget type movies, and they had the opportunity to work with Charlton Heston and, what, and Charlton Heston was a pretty big star at the time. It's kind of a big get for Universal International, mm -hmm. who were at the time making movies starring like Jeff Chandler and other people that you probably haven't even heard of. Um, but they, it was a get to get Charlton Heston. And they cast Orson Welles, the actor, uh, in the role, the Hank Quinlan role in the film. Uh, and then they found themselves without a director because they lost a director, dropped out, or I'm not sure exactly what happened with the director. Um, and, and then uh, Charlton Heston went to the producers and said, well, you know, you got Orson Welles is going to be here on the set every day and he's a good director. Uh, and of course, he had been exiled from Hollywood, uh, literally exiled from Hollywood. Uh, and it was a controversial notion to bring back Orson Welles to have him direct the film. Uh, but Welles agreed to do it. Um, I don't believe he took any money for doing it. He just got paid his actor's wage for doing the film. Uh, and then he, the only reason he agreed to do it was it, the, was they gave him the power to rewrite the film. So Wells rewrote the film. Uh, he obviously directed the film. He's brilliant. Um, he's brilliant as an actor. He's brilliant as a director. Um, and, and then while some of us might look at Charlton Heston and say, oh, this is sort of brown face. Um, it's too bad that, say, Ricardo Montalban, who would have been fantastic in the oh role. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The, the, movie does, the movie doesn't get made without Charlton Heston. Charlton yeah. Heston was the reason the movie was able to get made. It's the reason that Wells is able to be in the movie. So we have to take our compromises where we get them. Uh, but, mm. but yeah, Wells, it's, uh, there's so many sequences in the film that only Wells could have done. Um, you mentioned the whole beginning sequence with the putting oh the car bomb. And of Let's course, talk about that opening three minutes, shall we? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful sequence. And and when the studio released the film, by the way, they uh, they made that the opening credit sequence, which I don't mind very much, but a lot of people are very uptight about. They they actually made that whole sequence the opening credit sequence, so the credits are happening over that. Which Wells was upset about, I get it, but it also is like the most awesome opening credit sequence of all time. Uh, if that is the credit sequence, sometimes, sometimes, just sometimes, the studio is right, right, on behalf yeah, of the I, audience. I, I don't know. Yeah, Wells didn't think they were right, and, I, and I'm forced to sort of say, yeah, okay, whatever Wells wanted, but I like it as a credit <laughs> yeah. sequence. But yeah. but yeah, it's like it's like an unbelievable shot, and they they filmed it several times. 
Um, and they kept getting to the end of the sequence, by the way, this got a bit of trivia. And there's like one, like a guy has like one line, like, like, are you bringing anything into the country or whatever he says? And he blew it, you know, <laughs> they set up this incredible shot, like all this stuff. And the guy blows the line. Eventually they looped the line. Because he blew, he didn't just blow the line, which is easily fixable. He blew the line, and he was like, "Oh, doggone it! I blew the line," you know, <laughs> which is uh, the worst thing you can do. This is a four point one on Letterbox. This is a highly rated movie. I had not seen this before. Oh, you had. I had not seen it before movie, this yeah. week, so I was oh excited to watch more Orson Welles. And last week we did The Third Man, and so that was like I can sit. I love Citizen Kane, but like most people, maybe that's like one of the only Orson Welles movies I've seen, to be honest. Like, I, you know, I'm a movie lover, but like, I just realized, man, I haven't seen like any Orson Welles movies besides Citizen Kane. Well, he didn't direct, he didn't direct The Third Man. Carol Reed directed The Third Man, although Welles had a habit of sort of directing his scenes right. in Taking every over. movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He is unrecognizable in this for a while, right? I had to, mm-hmm. he's wearing a fat suit, sure. He's wearing a fat suit and he's wearing a rubber nose. He often wore a rubber nose. He almost always wore yeah. a rubber nose, actually. Uh, um, and then he was, he's all grimed up and he's, he looks terrible. Um, but, but he had not been in Hollywood for a number of years when he came back to make this movie. And he, was, he, he had a party. He was like a coming back party. Um, and he was all, all dressed up for shooting his scenes. You know, it's the end of the day. He's like, oh, crap. I'm not going to have time to change clothes before I go to this party. So he leaves. He goes to the party and he walks in like that, like just looking like shit. Uh, he walks in like that. And he said the first thing that happened is somebody walks up to him and goes, Orson, you look wonderful. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood pony, you know. He looks like he hasn't bathed in a month. He is sweaty. His the scenes with Mar- Marlene Dietrich. I mean. She worked, she worked for free, too. And that was that was the whole thing, like, where that character wasn't even in the script. And Wells was just like, well, we can get Marlena. My, my friend, my old friend Marlena, they were close friends. I get my old friend Marlena Dietrich to work on this and brought her in and wrote the whole part for her. And it's the it's the heart and soul of the movie. Um, she provides like the epilogue of the film at the very end, which is just so wonderfully sort of existential. Um, yeah. yeah, she she's the heart and soul of the film. And that, that character wasn't even supposed to be in it. Wow, that is so fascinating to learn because if it had... I was watching it thinking, in films like this, you usually, you usually only get the Janet Lee character. You don't get two women. You usually yeah, just yeah. get the one, and she's in so much danger, and there are you know moments where you think she's about to get gang raped, and it's just it's, it's sort of all-round traumatic, and it's, and it's a relief as a viewer to also have this other character who's just completely in command of her own domain, ha- happy to hang out and watch her pianola play itself. There's a wonderful part, and I, this isn't too much of a spoil a spoiler here, but there's a wonderful part where um, there's almost like a moment where the dialogue is kind of a snappy, witty, romantic uh, interplay where, you know, he says, I wish I was getting fat on your chili. And she says, careful, it might be too hot for you, yeah. which is like, you know, yeah. it's kind of the kind of dialogue for the sort of like sexy tennis match of back and forth. But it's but he's so just run down and and sexually yeah. completely non, uh, you know, uh, in the in the mix here. He just goes. Uh, you know, yeah. he doesn't even, he doesn't he even return, sir. Yeah. You know, she just he's says, got, he's got no follow up. Like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> visually, visually, this movie is amazing. I, I mm. thought this was like stunning to look at the whole time. And there's a review from Wood that we have uh, in our list from Jack. Touch of Evil might be the Citizen Kane of Orson Welles' filmography. 
yeah. gorgeous to look That's at. That's deep. I, I, I got to read the comments on that one because I, I, I really, I get it. But I'm sure that many people did not get exactly that. <laughs> oh, it's sort of, is it spoilery to talk about the whole scene in the, in the, in the oil field? Because that is the choreography of that. What you're talking about the scene where, where the, where the, there's the, the microphone wearing the mic. Oh yeah. Oh, guilty. He's guilty. He'll confess. Hey, listen to that. Huh? I got the half shot. You that? You're what? Fucking anchor. Bargains. I don't feel any someplace around here. It, it's Shakespearean. You know, there's a Shakespearean, the, the Joseph Kaleo who plays uh, the deputy or like the Hank's assistant or whatever the hell he is. Mm. Um, you know, there's like the he really loves the man, which is stated. But that's there's there's like really Wells at this point had been making in Europe making he had been in Europe making Shakespearean movies, um, and he was you know a brilliant Shakespearean, and he would write make more Shakespeare movies. Um, but but really that relationship between them is so deep and so Shakespearean, and also the 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 tragic flaw is a classic tragic flaw, and that Hank Quinlan really does. He actually really does have this ability to kind of know who's guilty and who isn't guilty. It's actually mm-hmm. true. He does. We can we see it happen in the course of the film. Um, but yeah, the, the, we we also see his tragic flaw. Um, there's it's it's such a wonderful conception of the character. It's so much deeper than the sort of pulp origins of it. Um, I have to say another reason I love this movie so much is the pulp origins of it. I love pulp art, and I love mm-hmm. when pulp art kind of becomes more um, becomes deeper. Um, then we give it credit for sometimes when we look at this pulp art and we say, oh, no, there's actually a lot that's being said here in this pulp art, almost as a kind of automatic writing. Now, of course, Wells was a great artist. It's, this is not the case where it's like an accidental masterpiece. It's a totally intentional masterpiece, but mm. um, but it does uh, emerge from some of the same ground uh, as some other sort of less intentional noir masterpieces that do tell us a lot about about ourselves. It's pretty awesome. I mean, very good timing for November. Thank you to have this in your top four. It is, interestingly, um, the second highest rated film of 1958 behind Vertigo. And it is the eighth highest rated film noir film on Letterboxd. And here's a really here's a really interesting thing about that film, which is so highly rated and which is so highly esteemed and which we all love so much is Universal International got that film and they said, well, this is a piece of garbage. And they released it as the second half of a double feature, the bottom, the basement half of a double feature uh, with a movie, a Hedy Lamar movie called The Female Animal, which I've watched too. And it's just a really, really, truly dreadful movie, um, which I also kind of enjoy. But, it is, but, but Universal International looked at Touch of Evil and said, well, this is barely worth releasing. Before, before we drift into your next uh, film, Switchblade Sisters, I have to call out a poster I see in the background of your video. Is that uh, Artie from the greatest television show ever made, Larry Sanders? Yes. Yes. It was Rip Torn uh, from the uh, Texas, um, Texas uh, Film Hall of Fame. Uh, from our induction ceremony when we had, when we had Rip Torn here, uh, we had a giant blow up of him that we used as part of the ceremony. And... Uh, it was just kind of around in storage, so I figured I would put it up in my office so that I would always be inspired by, yeah, by Artie. God oh. bless. We should all have a salty dog after the recording of this yeah, uh, yeah. episode in, in <laughs> memoriam. 
So our next film is Switchblade Sisters. Let's get into some exploitation. 1975, 3.5 average on Letterboxd. You're one of 23 fans that have this in their top faves on Letterboxd. A quick synopsis of this movie. A tough gang of teenage girls are looking for love and fighting for turf on the mean streets of the city. Bad girls to the core. These impossibly outrageous high school hoodlums go where they want. Is this a Gemma synopsis or is this the official no, one? No, no, that's the official one. Here's my this one. This is the official one. Okay. And <laughs> no, create here's, here's mayhem <laughs> wherever they go. All right, here's my one. Lace and Patch are the lead girls in the Dagger Debs, but when they try to get a stranger, Maggie, to clear off from their favorite diner table, and Maggie turns out to be a total badass, she joins the gang and jealousies abound over friendships, dudes, and roller skates. <laughs> I don't know if it's any better, but at least it introduces you to good. the main characters. Anyway, this is from legendary exploitation director Jack Hill, and it's his fourth highest rated film on Letterboxd, sandwiched between Coffee and Foxy Brown. And this, like every week there is a watch of the week, and I thought it was going to be Phantom of the Paradise, but no, Lars, it's this one. Thank you. I thought I'd seen it. <laughs> Because I've seen, you know, I've been going to Ant, we'll talk about Ant Timpson in a, in a wee while. I've been going to his festivals for years and years. But this is actually one that has slipped through the cracks for me. And I, I'm just, I just am so grateful to you for the Switchblade Sisters this week. What did you like about it? Ah, um, I loved all the women. I loved every single last woman, especially Muff. Yeah. She is amazing. Oh my God. Like I thought, I actually thought the film couldn't get any better. And then Marlene Clark turns up. Yeah, yeah. With her armoured vehicle. And I'm like, okay, here we go. This is great. Loved the whole prison scene. I'm glad we got a, um, you know, a, a WAP scene that was brilliant. Uh, Maggie's double denim, totally hot. Um, Slim specifically called out the farting, a lot of farting in the film. Lots of farting in this. Lots of farting. <laughs> Lines of dialogue like, oh, he's my special project coordinator in charge of... Uh, special project coordination (laughs) stuff like that and what I write I just wrote the music the pacing the dialogue the camera movements this is a seriously well-made exploitation film the only thing wrong with it is the girls fighting over guys but the choreography of that final fight and the shadows Mm. on the wall oh my goddess this was this isn't it's a banger Thank you, Lars. Why is it in your top four? Well, for all those reasons you just said, I mean, it's so good. It's a real movie, you know, it's a real movie. And if you just kind of saw the poster and you've um, and, and, you know, you, heard, you read the title, you'd probably be like, well, I've been here before. I've been yeah. I've been let down before by this That's, movie. It looks yes. so great on a poster and then it doesn't <laughs> let you down. It has everything that you would want. The characters are so great. You just like even even like the flawed characters the characters yeah. that you don't like well, of the women not the men yeah. i don't want to hang yeah. out with any of these men but no, like no. of the women they're just all so cool and you, you know you usually get to see and from everything from the godfather through to the warriors it's it's dudes being dudes as i often like to say on this show but also it's it's sort of male power struggles all the way along and the and the women who support them and it was just so satisfying to watch female power struggles and especially towards the end when there's that whole in the back at the gang headquarters when there's that whole thing that plays out about who the leader is and who the leader is now and who the new leader is and you have to have the showdown and ah oh, yeah it's like a war it's it's also a shakespearean movie mm-hmm. which is an interesting sort of um 
it, the power struggles are Shakespearean in nature, like Shakespearean histories. Um, the relationship between Patch and Lace is like Iago and Othello, uh, mm-hmm. very much so. Um, and it, the, the exact same thing is happening in that. It's not, I've, I've seen people say this is a remake of Othello, which is not exactly true. It just sort of steals like a, a little dynamic from Othello. But, but yeah, all of those things are there. And it's funny because it, it's also, uh, it's, when I put it in my top four, it's emblematic of a type of movie that I like, which is like takes place in a high school or in some other sort of small context. Uh, and it's like a war. It's like World War Two sized beefs, you know, that are being settled within this high school. Um, great word. Also, there's a, like a great part in this where it's like, um, OK, there's like an, an, uh, this is uh, this won't spoil it too much, I hope, for people to watch the movie anyway. But like there's a huge shootout at the roller rink and it's like this would be on the national news. Yeah. If there were like a shootout like this in the roller yeah. rink. And yet nobody's th- it does not a big deal to anybody. And then even later, like the cops come around the drive in and they're they're like, uh, oh, you guys were involved in that fist fight over at the door yeah. at the roller rink. It's like, oh, yeah, that fist fight where we were shooting guns at each other. Um, yeah, it's like huge, enormous stuff going on yeah. yet it's in this in this context of the high school there's also like uh parodies of like the u.s political system going on you know with these people that are like setting up these like um taking government money and basically skimming it and stealing it just there's mm-hmm. so much stuff going on in this film uh, and it's just amazing. it's all in balance it all works the dialogue is fantastic the performances of the the three main female leads but then you know like you said there's muff and there's all the other female leads as, as well the, the sort of secondary female leads are all with Janice Carmen and Kitty Bruce are all wonderful as well so it's yeah. it, it's just a hell of a movie it's a real movie it's an evening's entertainment you watch it and you don't go well Let's watch another movie. You think, well, I have had a feast of entertainment. (laughs) Let's just watch this one again. What did you think, Slim? I I liked it. I could have sworn that I thought I've seen Joanne Nail in another movie before. The Visitor, maybe? That's, That's the big one. I, yeah, I looked at her filmography on Letterboxd, and it's pretty scant. I thought so. Maybe I thought like it's great movies, though. She, yeah, she knows how to pick them. I thought maybe I saw her in like a Chips episode or something when I was growing up and watching Chips on TV. It's <laughs> a good Rockford Files episode. Yeah, that, that probably was it. But I did. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I made a comment. My one of my notes was lots of farting in this. So as soon as like the the fight happened at the start of the movie. And they take over like that, you know, the, the main guard. I was like, oh my god, I'm, I'm for a real treat with this movie. And I think it's probably worth settling in on, you know, we talked about exploitation movies and you know, genre films. But how do you describe movies like this for people that maybe don't go into the grime, you know, of the '70s and find the kind of hidden gems? How do you? tell people about these kind of movies in a way that maybe like entices them. Maybe they're used to watching the Netflix flim flam. Well, this is probably a good pivot for me to talk about my book for a minute, because in, in the course of my of Warped and Faded, the, the book, a, a giant center section is just my write-ups that I did um, for publicizing the films that we showed. So those are not reviews. I've seen them sometimes people refer to them as reviews. They're not reviews. They're value. It's like a pitch. Yeah. yeah. They're pitches. Yeah. yeah. It's sales. It's basically ad copy. So like I love, I actually love what you write about Switchblade Sisters. You write, 
you compare it to the nastier Elizabethan dramas that were so popular with working class audiences of 400 years ago who crammed into disreputable theatres to watch blood-drenched intrigues of kings and thieves, which is as good a write-up as, I have to say, Tim Cop on Letterboxd, who says, like any good high school melodrama with all of the jealousy and gossip and clicks and classroom pranks and murdering people with M16s that goes with it. Oh my God, I can't believe you just referenced Tim Cop. Uh, he is going to be, he's an Austinite, by the way. He's going to be over the moon that you just read his review. Um, Yo, Tim yeah, Cop. Yeah. All, all, all that stuff is there. Um, and it's um, one really interesting aspect for people who are film nerds and film nuts. And this is a thing that I might say to people is that the, the Warner Brothers classic gangster movies, the James Cagney movies, the Humphrey Bogart movies, Edward G. Robinson movies, um, were enormously influential on Jack Hill. Um, and his dad worked for Warner Brothers. So it was, it was not a, it was not a, um, this is not me pulling this out of nowhere. He really was influenced by those gangster movies so much. And so when you hear the way, um, that lace talks, when you hear, um, when you see the final showdown and it's done in shadow, uh, Mm. like, like some of the pre-code gangster movies, it's like that, all of that is, uh, stylistically, a part of the makeup of Jack Hill and the way he makes his movies is he's really he really honestly does try to tell a story in a classic Hollywood vocabulary. Um, and it's yeah, it's if you if you're a big fan of those Jimmy Cagney movies, then this movie is for you. I, I've been telling my friends about this book all week. My friends, Dale and Chuck, Forsman do a podcast called Bat and Spider, which they go into the muck and the grime of movies and just paging through this book. In the, the middle portion of this, going through all the movies that have been screened for Weird Wednesday, all of these movies sound so enticing. It's ridiculous. It's like a menu. It's like when you go to all-you-can-eat buffet of movies that you want to track down and watch. So I can't recommend it enough. And you mentioned p- sales pitches. Like the middle part of this book is, like I said, how do you get someone to watch a movie like Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker, which I watched for the first time this year? And that's an incredible movie. And I think I watched it only because it was on Shudder. You know, otherwise I would have never probably seen this movie unless someone like, you know, loaned me a DVD copy. But movies like that, there's just so much value in having people discover things that maybe they would pass over normally. You know, like they see a poster for these movies. They're like, oh, that looks corny as hell or low rent or low budget. But there's so much good in those movies. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like this book, you know, I, I hope people check it out because the work that you've done for, you know, the screening weekly at the Alamo was years ago. It's so important. You know, there's so many movies like this. And the story that you told about Suzanne. Susan Terrell. Su- Su- Suzu T- uh, Tyrell coming to the screening. Maybe one of the greatest anecdotes I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, uh, we were, and, and Zach Carlson writes a, a whole uh uh, Weird Wednesday Hall of Fame bio of her too, and the 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 thing was, I was honored some years later to um, be approached by our family to actually put together her memorial service, which was at the Draft House, and we did a screening of her movie Fat City, uh, and uh, I, I was nice, I was glad to have some closure because the woman did not like me one bit. So uh, the fact that I was I was honored enough to be asked to uh, produce her memorial service was was um, a good sense of closure for me because I loved her even though she hated me. Uh, you do write in the book that you were like terrified of her, like everyone was terrified of her. But this is like this. I feel like I want to read the story out, but it's so long and it's so involved. People got to buy it. People got to buy the book and get that anecdote. It's too man, good for you free. Trying, you trying to hit me in the wallet on this thing? People got to buy the book. You're killing me over here. <laughs> 
page 77. Anyway, Kayla Janice is awesome. Her documentary that uh, she put out this year, Woodland, Dark and Days Bewitched, is incredible on folk horror. And she worked with you on, she worked with you on the oral history part of the book at the front, which is just so brilliant in how it sets the scene of what was most definitely a scene and it's got all the players in it. It's got Tim and Carrie League, it's got Ant Timpson, it's it's got you, of course. And I just wanted to kind of get a sense of what it was like working with her because she's sort of been there from the start as well, right? Yeah, Kayla was Kayla was, has been there since two thousand she was at Draft House starting in two thousand three, I think. So um I when I was just programming Weird Wednesday before I became a full time programmer, Tim brought her in Tim League brought her in as hired her as a programmer. So yeah, she's uh, very much my programming mentor, even though I was programming before I met her because I learned how to be a real programmer and program more than just Weird Wednesday. But yeah, she did more than just uh, uh, edit this book. I mean, she fought tooth and nail for like, I mean, the cover has like a glossy finish on it. Mm. How did that happen is because Kayla like stormed in with her fist flying and said, (laughs) you know, don't tell me we don't have the budget to put like to to have like a glossy cover. It's like, I quit. You guys suck. It's like, this is like, Kayla is so uncompromising about her projects that uh, it's, I mean, she's a truly amazing human being. Uh, I admire her so much. Um, and I'm also just really scared of Kayla Janice. Uh, <laughs> And just the life force that she represents. Uh, but but working with her on a project, if you ever have the opportunity to be on the same side, the same team as Kayla, take it. If you ever have the opportunity to be on the other team from Kayla, just go do something else for four years. Just, just join the Jezebels, okay? Just just join, join the, the Jesuits. <laughs> Don't just, get, just get the hell out of there. Speaking of people um, I used to be scared of before I realized he was just a big old teddy bear who likes weird movies, uh, my friend Ant, Anthony Timpson, gets a special thanks in your book. Apparently, you have him to thank for the job. He writes, I just want to lay it out straight away up front that there will be no weird Wednesday if I hadn't told Tim League to hire Lars in the first place. Yeah, Ant likes to really sort of do a lot of self um, mythologizing. So, I mean, I think that that's sort of like a part of what he does. Um, it certainly is. I think for I think everything's true. Yeah, I think every, when somebody says an anecdote, makes an anecdote and, and shares an anecdote like that, it's true in some way. It's true. I um, watch Come to Daddy. By the way, add it to your watch list if you haven't seen it. It's Ant's uh, feature directorial debut, starring Elijah Wood. Um, Very good. Yeah. I. I texted Ant this morning. I told him we were having you on the show, and I said, if you have one question for Lars, what would it be? Are you ready for it? Sure, why not? (laughs) Ask him about Toys Are Not For Children, and if it was remade, who should star in it? Okay, so Toys Are Not For Children is, um, this is an Ant Tempson classic. You you would absolutely not be surprised that Ant Tempson loves this movie so much. Uh, it's a film, and I am going to spoil this movie a little bit, but it's a film about um, a young woman who has very, uh, has had a lot of difficulty with her father, uh, and her sex impulse is all mixed up with her need to be parented. I should have known Anne was going to drop me right in it. Yeah, and she, she collects toys, um, and then at the same time, she becomes a call girl. And eventually it happens that there's a 
uh, all everything just sort of builds up until there's an incestuous moment in the film that the audience begins to sort of see coming down the highway, trucking in at 60 miles an hour, and they're just like watching it get closer and closer and closer. They watch the headlights get closer and closer and closer until it collides, and it really happens in the movie. Um, and that is a film that when you watch it with an audience um, – the tension begins to sort of ratchet up as the audience begins to feel the narrative inevitability of it, because certainly it's something that can't happen, right? This isn't mm-hmm. going to happen in this movie. There's no way this is going to happen in this movie. And then it gets closer and closer and it becomes like, how can this not happen at this point? It seems like this is going to happen. And then it happens. Um, so yes, that experience is, um, it's, and it's a movie that I've shown a number of times that I seriously sort of cherish uh, the car crash like experience of of the audience sitting there, not thinking it's going to happen, not crediting their eyes, not believing that it's going to happen and then watching it happen. So what was the question? Who would you cast in a remake? Who would I cast? <laughs> yes. Um, Got to go with Anthony Hopkins as the dad. Oh, uh, but not Olivia Coleman as the daughter. We've been there already. And knows this very well and he's this is an attempt by Ant Thompson to sabotage this podcast and I I'm really not happy with it. Um, not here for it. Yeah, no you could not make this movie again today and he knows that. Please tell him that I don't appreciate this at all. Well much of the oral history at the front of the book I loved with the you know the actual discovery of the prince and screening those movies kind of almost like not knowing what to expect when you screen the movie, throwing some trailers on from other reels ahead of the movie. I loved hearing that in the book. And there was a few, there were a few segments in the discussion at the onset about how, you know, obviously things have changed where you're chasing down these, these reels, you know, where maybe someone has them in storage and nobody else has them. And that experience of finding a movie that maybe no one has ever like seen in the last 50 years, Obviously, accessibility for these films has changed since then, but has that impacted the way you program movies at all? That kind of like accessibility in a lot of these films, or do you still kind of seek out the ones that, you know, might blow some minds because no one has seen it? Yeah, I I don't, you know, I, I, as my, in my philosophy as a film programmer, and I've been a film programmer for 20 years now, and I program for Austin Film Society, and it's a very different kind of world from when I first started, and I was just doing Weird Wednesday before I became like a programmer at large at Draft House. Um, It's a different sort of, I have a different philosophy because I don't, I'm just trying to give people a great movie experience, and I kind of like rarity is sort of incidental to it, honestly. Mm. Like if if we can throw something rare out there, I think that's wonderful. But like ultimately, I want people to have an amazing experience with these films. Um, But but back in those days, it was a very different experience because everything was rare. You know, everything Mm. that uh, along these lines was rare and difficult to find. Um, And I think that one thing that it seems to have become sort of conventional wisdom that. Um, oh, a lot of these films aren't rare anymore, but a whole bunch of other films are getting discovered all the time, and now they're rare. So right. I, I do sort of almost feel like um, that there's a God that exists outside of linear time, and that God is sort of reaching down into like saying, oh, yeah, 
I, I just cooked this one up for you. I'm going to drop this here in 1986. Uh, enjoy that, suckers. And then we're all finding it, you know, um, because it sometimes really does seem like the past is just this inexhaustible resource and it's just more stuff keeps getting found. And certainly we found our share of cool stuff, but more stuff keeps turning up. So like when a movie like Switchblade Sisters or something is not obscure anymore or uh, – whatever, then there, there's another, there's at least one other amazing film that is so obscure that, you know, we can, if, if we really insist on valuing obscurity, we can continue yeah. to do so. Right. It's like New York Ninja with the Vinegar Syndrome, the uh, release that they had this week, you know? Yeah, that's, that's very obscure. Yes. But also to be fair, there are millions of members on Letterboxd these days, but mm-hmm. still only 23 of them, including you, have Switchblade Sisters in their top four. <laughs> so... You know, you got Switchblade Sisters still has a long way to come into the light. And speaking of, I love, I love how part of the work you do is not just bringing the films into the light, but the filmmakers and you and and the book mm. in the book you do write about. We talked about Susan Tyrell, but also um, is it Jamar Fanaka? Talk about a bit about him. I'd never heard of him until I opened the book and started reading about how you found him and invited him to the cinema and and you spend a lot of the end of the book on on some of the people who worked on or acted in these movies like John Saxon who some may know from Enter the Dragon I just love I love and appreciate that you're you're shining the light on the on the people in and behind the films as much as the films themselves yeah I've all I've always just been um I've never understood it and I, I don't like it when I when people sort of act like oh these are these are just schlock masters this is all they can do People got their shot. They got their opportunity to make films with these exploitation films, and they put a lot of themselves into them. And, you know, Stephanie Rothman, who's also in the Weird Wednesday Hall of Fame, we talk about quite a bit. Um, you know, one thing that she was telling me, and she was really just imploring and saying, you, you realize that these aren't the films I set out to make. That when I wanted to become a filmmaker, you know, it wasn't – I didn't want to make The Student Nurses. I didn't want to make The Velvet Vampire. These aren't the films that I – would have made had I had the same life choices that some of these men, frankly, had. Um, but but these are the films that I could make. And she was very, I, I felt like Stephanie was a little defensive when I first talked to her about the films. Like, what kind of, what, you know, what kind of weirdo are you that you like these films? Mm. Um, but then we had her out and we did a screening and we showed these films and the audience, the questions that they asked um, the way that they responded, the stuff that they laughed at, you know, all of that kind of made her realize that, yeah, there's a, there are actually a lot of people that kind of get my contribution to this. Like the part of myself that I actually did smuggle into this film, that's the stuff that they're really responding to. And this, the part of this, this film that I just was forced to put in because I didn't really – because. I couldn't have made the movie if I hadn't had a shower scene, you know, at the 38 minute mark. Um, that's the stuff that they just kind of like yawned through. So mm-hmm. um, that happened. I saw that happen on numerous occasions. And Jamal Fanaka, you brought up Jamal Fanaka. It's like, yeah, that, that's um, he was he was so enthused. Somebody had mentioned in an, an Amazon review, I think it was, or maybe it was IMDb, that they had watched the film at, at Weird Wednesday, one, one of his films, MMA, and he was just hunting around for anybody talking about his film who would who's seen it i want to know what people thought of this film that i made that just kind of disappeared down the drain of obscurity and then he found that people were talking about it and then he came here and not only did he come here um he made so many friends because he showed that movie he showed penitentiary uh, and people were so responsive to the film 
to those films that he was just walking around going friend for life, friend for life. Who are Chris friend for life. That was his thing. He said it, he said it for so many people. Um, and then he, and then he did film filmmaking seminars here in Austin. He did a couple of those where he actually like rented a hall and put on film classes here in Austin. Uh, and then we lost him, you know, a few years after that. And it was, it was so sad, but it was wonderful to have that chance for him to kind of meet people and make all these new friends for life um, with with what remained of his life at the time. God bless. See, that's the stuff. This, that's, that's, that's life. That's the stuff that we value in life. And that's the stuff that I've drawn out of this series. So, yes. Some of these films are kind of frivolous, but this is real life. This is this is our real engagement with other people, and it's it's been there for me. And it's in this thirty-five dollar book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You just um, averted that. I was like, I did not think I was going to cry during a podcast about exploitation <laughs> films, but here we are. <laughs> Got quite teary just then. Yeah, we'll have we'll have a link in the episode notes, obviously, to the book. Highly recommended. Please do check it out. If you've been mm. enjoying the Letterbox show, I think you're really gonna love the book. Hundred years ago, your next movie in your mm. faves. I'll never forget when it came out. It was what <laughs> what an experience it was. Where to go were you? Nineteen twenty six for Buster Keaton's The General. Uh, everyone's probably seen clips of this movie at some point in their lives in a retrospective or a clip show somewhere during America's Civil War, Union spies steal engineer Johnny Gray's beloved locomotive, the General, with Johnny's lady love aboard in an attached box where and he single-handedly must do all in his power to both get the General back and rescue Annabelle. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Yeah, I do remember the first time I saw this movie because I saw it at the Alamo Draft House and there was a live score accompanying <sighs> this. It was by Guy Forsyth. Uh, and he put together, it was like all acoustic. It was like, there was like banjos and um, kind of period appropriate um, um, musical instruments. And the film, as you no doubt noted, has this incredible sort of propulsive energy, very much like a locomotive, you know, uh, this incredible propulsive energy just builds and builds and builds. And the music uh, that went with it and putting the music with it were, um, the theme, he played Elizabeth Cotton's song Freight Train. It, it was a kind of a mo- motif that ran throughout the course of his live score. The way it just would build and build and build. Uh, and I, I don't know, it, it was a, it was one of the great movie-going experiences I ever had was watching this for the first time. Um, and it, it, lives, it lives on. I, I, I wish I had a recording of that Guy Forsyth live score that he did, but I don't. But every time I watch the movie, I, I'm really reminded of, of that, um, that singular experience. Wes writes on Letterboxd, I don't want to hear jack shit about Tom Cruise's stunts in those Mission Impossible movies. When Buster Keaton managed to do what he did in a film this romantic and grand that was released almost 100 years ago. And uh, Slim was found dead in a ditch. I'm <laughs> trying to grief me with that Tom Cruise slander, but I mean, I, this is all. This is the first time I watched this movie this week. I first tried to watch it on Amazon, but they had a colorized version that I did not want to watch. So I think I watched it on Paramount, maybe Paramount Plus or some such. I sat through that piece of shit colorized version. Oh God, I'm Gemma, so, no! Oh my God, Lord! I feel, probably yeah, a version I feel on YouTube dirty. you could have watched too. Yeah, totally. The stunts in this movie are insane. You know, whatever someone says about Buster Keaton's in general, it's real. 
those four by fours that he was throwing in front of that train. Oh my God. How did no, how did not the entire uh, staff of this movie die while filming this movie? Blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was doing his own. St- I mean, it wasn't like there were a lot of stunt men, you know, it was like he was just doing the stunts, you know, he was just, and I mean, the amazing control that he had. And even though he's not credited as director, uh, there's another director. I don't remember who's actually credited as the director who's mainly doing like the sort of, um, at the time, if you were the action director, you weren't credited as the director. Buster Keaton was doing the action direction in this. Uh, so Clyde Bruckman was doing the camera direction. The immortal Clyde yeah. Bruckman. Um, yes. Yeah. So Clyde Bruckman's d- directing like the scenes, you know, in the living room or whatever, or, or in, on the siding where people are talking about going to war or whatever. So, but then Keaton's directing the action scenes. Keaton's directing the stuff in the movie that we really remember now. Um, and... His conception of the film is so bold, like to actually, I mean, it's it's a real freight train. It's a real locomotive. Uh, and yet he's doing all these incredibly subtle little m- moments with, with, with it in his stunts. They blow up a freaking huge bridge. That's not a miniature. That's a real train. It's insane. Um, yeah. Like like all of these things. It's just it's Keaton's vision. And and it's beautiful. He's beautiful like he's a beautiful creature his face is so emotive beautiful tiny man yeah like tom cruise a tiny man (laughs) there's one of my i mean obviously all this action stuff with the train is just unbelievable but there's a scene in this that every time i see it is just it thrills me so much because there are moments when the star wins you in the film where you are you you just you, you've been won over already, but it's a moment where you realize that you've been won over, where you mm. realize that you're all in for this guy. Um, and in that in this movie, it happens when um, so Annabelle's been kidnapped and she's been the, the bad guys have taken her and they've stuffed her in this like cabin or something. And then Keaton comes up and he spies her through the window um, and he he realizes that, hey, what a crazy coincidence. You know, Annabelle's here. I could sneak in here and grab her. Uh, and he realizes that. And it's it's not it, it wasn't like he had gotten there by anything other than a coincidence. Um, but but he sneaks his way in. He grabs her and she's like, you came all this way to to, to find me. Uh, yeah, because, by the way, if you haven't seen it, he he she'd asked him to enlist for the war, yeah, the Civil yeah, War. Yeah. He tried to enlist and they'd gone. But you're a railroad engineer. You're, you're essentially an essential worker. We can't spare right. you for the for the war, which which happened to it happened to my grandfather, who was a policeman. They were like, no, you cannot. You cannot go away and serve in World War Two. You're a policeman. We need you. Um, so he quit the police and went and did it anyway. But yeah, so that happened. So poor old Buster Keaton is kind of left behind. Her dad and her brother are very disapproving. They've somehow gotten the misconception that he didn't even try to enlist. And right. um, and so it seems like love is over. Love is love is gone for Buster. Right. And so this is the first moment, right, since that. And and he and he so he he sneaks in. Uh, to rescue her. And Annabelle sees him and she says, you came all this way just to rescue me. What a what a heroic thing that you've done. And of course, it's just been a coincidence. But she goes to hug Buster Keaton and he begins to have a moment where he's like, no, no, actually, here's how it happened. And then he just like, it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to accept it. <laughs> I'm going to take that. I'm going to take it. And the audience, like watching it with an audience, the audience is like, yeah. <laughs> you know, accept it, accept this. 
Except we love you so much, Buster. Accept this this misconception as true. Um, and that's just such a beautiful moment in the mm-hmm. film where we we tell him it's okay. You, it's a white lie. It's fine. You know, mm-hmm. um, I love those moments in films. Gemma, Jack points out in this movie and in A Touch of Evil that the older the movie, the less inspired letterbox lists they appear on. Why do you think that is? Oh, it's a really good question. I'm just going to say once again, recency bias. Mm. Uh, yeah, something about like at what what it's on a couple of lists that are called train cinema. And <laughs> the least effort and, list. Yeah. Anxiety inducing <laughs> comedy of errors. But then if we go back and look at Switchblade Sisters, one of my favorite lists that it's on is called Femme Dirtbag Burnout Hessian Personal Canon in Progress. <laughs> uh, you know, like people put a lot of effort into their lists. Yeah. And then it comes to, yeah, you're right. It comes to the older movies and they don't quite get the same. Mm. What do you think, Lars? I, I mean, I see it all the time. Yeah, there's definitely like a, a, a recency bias. I mean, uh, I, most of the younger people that I know are like AFS interns or work at the AFS cinema, frankly. Uh, mm. So they're they're already pretty into into films. But even then, like um, just ha- just the interest level in, say, black and white movies to, you know, is is less than the interest level that you might, you know, have even in like seventies New Hollywood, you know, which is in color. So it's it's not even it's a it's a recency bias, but it doesn't just mean that like they're only interested in Denis Villeneuve. It's like it's they're, they're also like only interested in um, if I if I say hey do you I remember talking to one guy who's like a like a really good cinematographer and he's like a film student and he had graduated and all this and I was like. I was explaining, um, I, I don't remember which one I was explaining, um, but but I said, it has Robert Mitchum in it. And he was like, do you know who Robert Mitchum is? And he goes, I think so. Oh. You know, so <laughs> it was like, um, which which is the sort of, you know, Generation Z, mm-hmm. like, yeah, no. Right. They need to get the Criterion channel and then they'll know Robert Mitchum. I would just say tune in this time next week when Slim gives us the link to his brand new list, Tiny Men Doing Big Stunts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about uninspired lists. I mean, this our final movie on your list, Phantom of the Paradise, is on movies that get batshit insane slash a shocking genre shift, erotic futurism, every, everything even potentially vaguely gothic. 1974 Brian De Palma. I didn't even know this movie existed. I'll be I'll be on my I'll be brave right now. Didn't even know this movie existed. I was not myself last night. Couldn't set things right with apologies or flowers. Out of place is a crying clown who could only frown and the play went on for hours. You didn't mention a list that it's on, which is simply called 70s musical extravaganza but that is a list provided for us at the very beginning of the pandemic for uh, comfort watching purposes by Ryan Johnson oh my who uh, put together a list of his favourite 70s movie musicals because he's, he's just a little bit of a he loves it he loves it when things got weird this one got weird, that's for sure. Rock opera hybrid of Phantom of the Opera and Faust, in which fledgling singer-songwriter Winslow Leach finds himself double-crossed by the nefarious music producer Swan, who steals both his music and the girl. Leach wants to sing it Phoenix for the grand opening of his rock palace, The Paradise. You might know Phoenix as Jessica Harper from Suspiria. At least that's my first thought when I saw her in this movie. 
this movie this movie blew my mind like I I was sitting this watching with my wife and various times we kind of like turned to her and like how have we not heard this movie and I think one of the reviews pointed out that I think Rocky Horror maybe came out a year later I don't know if that just sucked the oxygen out of the mainstream you know kind of like mind share of this movie but what was your first experience with the Phantom of the Paradise Lars? I don't remember exactly when I first watched oh, oh no I do remember when I first watched Phantom of the Paradise I totally do I hadn't thought about this in a long time um, back in the early days of MTV, um, they actually showed Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, occasionally, they would show full movies on MTV. This was back during like oh. the real golden age of MTV. This was probably 83 or something. Um, but yeah, like Mark Goodman, who had who was one of the MTV VJs, uh, was in Phantom of the Paradise as like an extra in one of those, in like the big scene where Beef mm-hmm. performs, I think. And <laughs> oh my God, uh, he was I like, I'm beef. in this movie. And let, we're going to show it. And they just showed Phantom of the Paradise. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I if I got it, got it when I was, mm-hmm. you know, a kid. But that was definitely the first time I saw Phantom of the Paradise. And then I didn't see it for years and years. And then uh, Guillermo del Toro, maybe the next time I saw it was when Guillermo del Toro presented it uh, at a draft house event. Paul Williams, I just want to talk about him for about, have we got another hour up our sleeve? Get into it. Paul Williams as the devil, as Swan in this movie. Oh my God. Can we just, I just need to remind listeners that Paul Williams wrote the Rainbow Connection for Kermit. Paul Williams wrote the lyrics for the iconic Love Boat theme song. Paul Williams won the Oscar for Evergreen. Paul Williams worked with motherfucking Daft Punk. Paul Williams turns up in this film, the worst hair imaginable. (laughs) (laughs) What's he supposed to do? What is Paul Williams supposed to do? Give him a break. (laughs) (laughs) I won't stand for this Paul Williams bashing. No, I'm not bashing. I love him. I just just think uh, the hair is perfect. It's perfect for this character. (laughs) He's just such a weird little... I mean, speaking of tiny men in movies, he's a weird little creep and it's and, and the height is sort of part of it, right? Because mm. uh, the Phantom, Winslow Leach, is is tall and imposing and then gets his teeth pulled out in prison and his face mashed in a record-pressing plant and then arrives at the Paradise Theatre to haunt it and bring down Swan. And there's this tiny man who's... I mean, the Phil Spector thing is obvious, right? It's Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's... That, that was sort of the figure. It's it's a Phil Spector, sort of Howard Hughes kind of amalgam there, there that that character is. Um, this is a – I should make a letterbox list because this this is one of those films for me where uh, a filmmaker takes everything that they know about films and throws it all in there. It's just like let's yeah. put everything in there. There's so many film references. Film references I'm still kind of figuring out. I'll still watch a film and go, okay, that's what that was. Um, but, but everything – it's just like the danger must have been there for Brian De Palma where he was thinking, I might just not, not be able to make another movie after this one. So this is going in there. This is this. Is, this is this. Uh, and a lot of my favorite movies are like those kinds of movies where it's almost like this is a summation of everything that I figured out about movie making and everything that I love about movie making. It's all in there. Um, this is one that I showed a couple of weeks ago here um, at Austin Film Society, and it's funny because I had I had recently sort of rewatched it a, maybe a few months ago, and I thought like, you know what, I'm just going to put this in the calendar, and yes. if people don't show up, you know, I'm, it's my birthday month, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> Deal with it, okay? I might lose a couple hundred bucks programming this. 
And the crazy thing was I started noticing like, oh, the pre-sales started creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. And then the shows were selling out and then I'm adding more shows. So like wow. the audience was there for this movie. And it was a it, like multiple huge sold out crowds uh, came and watched this film. And I, I sat and watched it in, in one of those sold out crowds with the audience. And uh, moments, I mean, they were with this movie. They were on it. All the funny stuff they were on. And then Jessica Harper, the first time she does her weird little shoulder hunch dance, oh, yeah. you know. Oh, my God. Yes. It's such a great moment, we're, and we're so on her side. Um, the crowd is just like, and it was mostly people I think had never seen the movie before, were just like applauding and like, you know, pulling their hair out. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, and then De Palma at the very end when he does kind of like the curtain calls for all the different performers, he, he again shows her a little weird shoulder hunch dance, and the crowd like goes berserk it was like a sporting event you know where where that happens and that comes up again the crowd is just like went insane so this is a movie that really really works with an audience today um and that was not a crowd of like gray hairs like myself it was a crowd of young people and this wow. movie uh, i mean brian de palma was ahead of his time when he made this movie because it, it works better now than it probably ever worked there's a couple of sort of like gay slurs in it um not said by good guys i should say uh but a couple of gay slurs in it that are sort of like unfortunate uh yeah. but for the most part this movie really could have been made this year by the hippest filmmaker out there but it also feels like Beef is is one of those perfect movie characters for you know for the freak crowd. Yeah, Garrett Graham. Beef. Yeah, yeah. People people love it. Something bothering you, Beef? Swan, this was scored for a check. I'm not doing it in drag. You can sing it better than any bitch. You don't know how right you are, Goliath. Okay, boys, from the bridge, hit it. And I think I think that this film uh, reminds me that of of the films in your top four, I feel like almost all of them have banging opening credits, absolute mm. bangers of opening credits. Jessica Harper's dance moves are absolutely hypnotizing in this movie. I was beside myself when she did that shoulder move off stage. <laughs> At the end of yeah. her singing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I need people to go see this movie. I need you to buy, rent this movie, search Jessica Harper dancing, Fan of the Paradise on YouTube, and then rent this movie. You will not be disappointed. We talked about that whole thing like where somebody gets you on their side for good. Don't you think that when she, she sings that song and then she dances off, <laughs> don't you think that that yeah. is one of those ultimate like, I'm on this character's yeah. side. Forever. Yeah. Forever you're on that. Yeah, yeah. God, I need to start exiting rooms that way. <laughs> if I if I have like a zinger at a party one night, I'm gonna do that little sachet out of the room, and I'm gonna win everybody over. This is a, it, it's another sort of like there could be like a Jessica Harper list because um, <gasps> yeah. it's funny we've talked to, we've talked about a number of these people have these incredible careers. You brought up Marlena Clark actually, Gemma. It's like Marlena Clark also has like one of these like uh, she's in some of my favorite movies, John Ganjin Hess, Son of Blob. Uh, mm. Switchblade Sisters. But yeah, Jessica Harper, if you look at the film that she's in, Pennies from Heaven, um, uh, it doesn't get talked about very much now, but Stardust Memories. Um, yeah, she's in this. She's in obviously Suspiria. She's in Inserts. Like all the Jessica Harper movies are fascinating. It's like, what a weird career. Have yeah. you guys seen Pennies from Heaven? 
No. No. It's so strange. It could it could very easily be on my top four. It is so oh, strange. Boy. It is such a remarkable uh, performance by Steve Martin, such a remarkable performance by Jessica Harper. Um, just so weird. So completely strange. Another weird musical that Jessica Harper's in. <laughs> straight, straight to the watch list. I love her so much. And I think that she, her line delivery of one specific line was my favorite line delivery of all four of your films. And uh, partly because I've, I've been there, but it's the way she delivers it. When, when Swan's going, I'll give you everything you want after she's, after she's sung the song. And she says, I want that crowd again. I'll do anything you want. I owe you everything. Just give me that crowd again. Tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah. And you go, yes. And he's like, yeah, well, all I want is your voice. But when the, the delivery of that line, I want that crowd again. And you just know that's it. She's been hypnotized by show business, I guess. And the Palma has not asked us to accept something that we can't accept because we wouldn't accept that, like, she wants Swan. She doesn't want Swan. She wants what Swan can give her, which is that crowd. I, mm-hmm. I love the fact that De Palma has to have – he has to make it real in that way. He, he could not operate in a, in, in, on a phony premise. Gemma, how did you feel watching Paul Williams make out with Jessica Harper semi-nude? I mean, I want that crowd again too, so no comment. <laughs> But that scene, to be fair, that scene's only 45 minutes long. <laughs> it's so long. Oh, my God. Insufferable. But it's all, oh, and it's just, he's up on the roof. And, oh, I mean, we really haven't talked about the Phantom at all. And the fact that no. there's an interesting actor, that's an interesting role. William mm-hmm. Fenley, yeah. He was he was really De Palma's guy uh, for a while, um, from from De Palma's early films on. In fact, De Palma's very first film, uh, which is a really interesting movie called uh, Murder a la Mod, um, that uh, Bill Finley's in that, and he he plays a really interesting role. But he was like uh, he, he was like De Palma's homie, you know. He was like his little homie, sort of, uh, who appeared in in all those films. And he's he's always great. And even when you see him in later De Palma films, it's such a it's so cool to see um, William Finley popping up. Uh, this far into the pandemic, um, are Austin audiences returning? Because Austin really, I mean, I've been to South by Southwest a bunch of times uh, for the music side, for the film side. I've made a documentary at South by Southwest with Flight of the Concords. That was a wild ride. It is such a cool movie town and such a great audience that you especially have built up with the Austin Film Society, that whole gang. Are the audiences coming back? How does it feel? Young people have been coming back. Older people have still been a bit sort of um, slower to come back. So um, I've really been sort of programming young uh, a lot recently. But we start a Fellini series tonight. So that's kind of getting back to sort of this. These are films that I want young people, old people, everybody to come to and sort of hoping that the older audiences are feeling safe enough to kind of come back. I mean, the the 
COVID, after we went through the whole sort of thing with Delta, it really went up and now it's going to go way down again. So that's my hope is that we can get our older folks again. Because one thing I really like is having, when when I came here, our audience was largely older folks. And then we sort of brought in a whole lot more young folks. And then, um, but then it was like old folks and young folks together. Um, And Mm. then middle-aged folks like myself, but old folks and young folks together. And that to me is really just where you're really harmonizing is when you've got old folks and young folks sitting together, talking together after the films, meeting each other, talking, interfacing. That's like the real beauty uh, spot for me is is old folks and young folks partying together. One final harmonization. What is the best genre film of 2021 so far for you? that you would recommend people check out? Oh, uh, you know, I haven't seen all of them. In fact, I haven't seen that many of them uh, just because of what I've been uh, programming. I'd say maybe my favorite genre film of the year has been Raging Fire, which is uh, because it it really is such a classic sort of Hong Kong feel to it. Um, and it has really wonderful fights. And the plot is so contrived and so classically dumb, like a lot of sort of 90s Hong Kong films. Um, but but it it works. You know, it works for the contemporary audience. It's not it, it's not a callback film so much. It's a film that can work for anybody who just might want to be want to duck out and go and see a movie. But at the same mm. time, all the callbacks are there. The 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 bizarrely constructed sites where the fights happen that just seem like they were just built in order for people to like have fights where they climb up a ladder halfway and then they jump down off some scaffolding and they do a flip around that. It's like the places that you would never see constructed in real life. All these elements wouldn't be there, but yet somehow they are. Uh, and there, of course, there's a giant fight there. So I, I really like Raging Fire a lot. It's probably my favorite genre film of the year so far. On behalf of Slim, on behalf of Everyone listening who's ever, ever found an exploitation or genre or B-grade one out of the box movie through one of your screenings or a screening indeed in their town of a print that's come from the Austin Weird Wednesday scene of incredible restoration nuts. Uh, Thank you. You're so welcome. I've I've had nothing but fun the whole time. So and I and I hope that everybody. I, I hope everybody has a, a strong belief in the magical power of fun, of just having fun in your life and doing this stuff and trying to screw people over. And you will find at the end of a few decades that you've done a lot of good stuff just by having fun and not screwing people over. So I hope everybody uh, can li- can live by that code. Thanks so much for listening to The Letterbox Show. And thanks to our guest, Lars Nilsson. Check out our episode notes for a link to buy Warped and Faded, Weird Wednesday, and the birth of the American genre film archive. You can follow Lars on Letterboxd, of course, using the link in our episode notes. And Austin Film Society is on there, too. And follow Slim, that's me, Gemma, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, composing Dynamo's Monica for the theme music, Vampiros Dancotech. Thanks to Jack for the facts, our booker, Linda Moulton, for looking after our guests, and Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, and to all of you for listening. If you have a minute, do drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts. We love feedback. Just a quick call out to Natalia, who who we forgot to mention last week, uh, who left a review a few months back asking us to bring Sean Fennessy on the pod. We did it in the episode before this one. The system works, Natalia. The system works, Natalia. 
It's all good. The Letterbox Show <laughs> is a tape deck production. That's the show. That was Lars Nilsson. He was some kind of a man. <laughs> working on it. Drop an octave, change a line there, give it a beat. Make it completely yours. Let's go. Far out. Doesn't that kind of change the whole thing? You heard what he said, make it yours. As long as it sounds good, nobody's gonna care what it's about. Is that so? Nobody cares what anything's about. Is that right? Who the hell listens to lyrics anyway? This, this, this is a tape deck podcast. Thank you.